you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the section preceding tonight's gospel, Jesus has been doing a fair bit of teaching about the kingdom of God using agricultural metaphors. Brian McLaren has suggested that because kings and queens and kingdoms seem so distant from our present-day reality, a better way to translate this term might be God's dream for the world. Jesus has been teaching about God's dream for the world that has begun to take shape and is moving steadily towards its final goal. In Mark's gospel, Jesus teaches that God's dream for the world may be as vulnerable as seeds thrown on a path, on rocks, among thorns. It may be hidden just now, its beginnings may be as small as a mustard seed, and its growth as mysterious as growing crops. But nothing can prevent the great future harvest, the light from shining, the mustard shrub from providing shelter and shade. The kingdom will succeed. God's dream will come true, no matter what setbacks there might be along the way. And in case the disciples should have missed the intended meanings of these stories, Jesus explained them to them in private as well. Today's gospel passage begins in the evening. Jesus has spent the day floating in a boat and speaking to crowds of people, some on the shore, some in other boats. Now he suggests to the disciples that they leave the crowds behind, and they do. There are two details I find particularly interesting in this part of the story. First, when they leave in the boat to go with Jesus, they aren't alone. Other boats are also there with them. Who is in those boats? What is their experience of the rest of the story? We simply don't know. The second detail I find interesting is the phrase that has been translated, just as he was. The verse reads, And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Many commentators suggest that this phrase means that Jesus was already in a boat when he asked the disciples to join him and go to the other side. This may very well be, but it does tickle my funny bone a bit to imagine the scene. It's funny enough to me to imagine Jesus floating in a boat on the water while people stand on the shore and listen to him teach. But it's even even funnier to imagine him tired and noticing that it's starting to get dark, stopping, directly addressing his disciples while everyone else can still hear him and telling them it's time to leave. So the disciples wade into the water, scramble into the boat, and sail away, leaving no time for handshakes, autographs, or selfies with the people who are standing on the shore watching them. Talk about a dramatic exit. But Jesus doesn't stop teaching when they sail away. Rather, as Tim Geddert notes, the boat becomes the classroom and the lesson plan shifts from metaphors to lived experience. It will soon be time for the disciples to apply what they have been learning in a practical situation. I have always been a city girl, but when I was in junior high and high school, I lived in St. John's, Newfoundland, a city on an island surrounded by water, and I quickly learned that I was living with people whose culture, whose entire way of life, was shaped by their relationship to the sea. Just in case I didn't pick that up by osmosis, every single book I read in my high school literature courses were stories about the sea. 
We read Robinson Crusoe, The Old Man in the Sea, Lord of the Flies, and the Newfoundland classics Death on the Ice and Bartlett, The Great Explorer. That's just the books. We studied poetry, drama, and short stories, too. People who live by water learn very quickly that not everything in life is black and white. The ocean is beautiful. It can provide you with a livelihood and food to feed your family. It can be the place where you feel most truly at peace and most truly at home. But the ocean can change in a split second and cause you to experience great terror and suffering. The sea can give life and just as easily the sea can take it away. The setting for tonight's gospel passage, the Sea of Galilee, is no different. In his book, Jesus a Pilgrimage, James Martin writes, Even today, storms suddenly stir up on the Sea of Galilee, the result of dramatic differences in temperatures between the shoreline and the surrounding hills. The strong winds that funnel through the hills can easily whip up waves in the relatively shallow waters. It's important to remember the terror that storms held for those in Jesus' day, as well as the rich religious symbolism of water. In ancient times, water was a symbol for life and a means of purification, but it also held out the potential for death and was an occasion of danger, as in the stories of the flood and the story of Jonah. The Psalms speak of God's power over the seas and use water as a symbol of peril. Save me, O God, says the psalmist, for the water has come up to my neck. Raging seas and howling storms would have represented to Jesus' contemporaries chaos and danger. Jewish belief was that the sea could also be the abode of demonic forces. On a less theological level, Martin continues, sea voyages were simply dangerous, as St. Paul would attest. A storm at sea could be frightening, even for an experienced fisherman, far worse if the storm was at night. Mark tells us that on this particular evening, a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already swamped. Try to imagine how terrifying that would be. It's dark, the wind is howling and whipping everything around you, you're wet, you're cold, you can't see anything because your eyes are stinging and full of water. Nothing around you feels stable because nothing around you is stable. The boat is pitching and heaving and you know that it's also taking on water because you can feel it steadily rising past your toes to your ankles and up your calves. This is a pretty good time to freak out. It's a better time to grab the ropes holding the sails or an oar or a bucket and get to work. Try to gain some control of the movement of the boat, or at the very least, try to make sure there's more water outside the boat than in it. And everyone would agree with you. Everyone is feeling and doing the same things you are, and then you notice that one person is behaving very differently. You frantically try to wipe the water away from your eyes, certain they must be playing tricks on you, but no, you are seeing correctly. Jesus isn't panicking. Jesus isn't helping. Jesus is asleep, sleeping on a cushion. A cushion? I love Mark's addition of that little detail. The storm is raging, the boat is pitching and heaving, and Jesus is sleeping on a cushion. I'm not sure how that would make you feel, but I know it would make me really angry. The storm is a crisis that requires all hands on deck, and Jesus, who really should be modeling impeccable servant leadership, is slacking off. He's asleep, on a cushion. 
The next section of the story contains four questions. The disciples ask two of them. During the storm, they ask, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Later, when Jesus has calmed the storm, they will ask, Who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? The second question suggests that the disciples did not expect that Jesus could stop the storm. Jesus' ability to command the wind and the sea surprises them. It's not what they were expecting. So what did they expect Jesus to do when he woke up? Grab a bucket and bail? Say something comforting? Or did they not actually expect him to be able to do anything? They were just shocked that anyone could possibly sleep through a storm. Were they waking him up less to say, save us, and more to say, what's wrong with you? That would be my question. Jesus, your behavior seems extremely selfish and inappropriate. Don't you care that we're dying? The text doesn't say might perish. The text says are perishing. Jesus, we are actively dying. How can you possibly be sleeping at a time like this? Jesus' response is to stop the storm and ask a few questions of his own. Why are you afraid? And have you still no faith? On first reading, Jesus' questions also seem a tad insensitive to me. I do not think I would give him top marks in a pastoral care course for this one. It seems obvious that almost dying in a storm and then seeing a man stand up, speak some words that stop a fierce storm in its tracks, that would be terrifying. So why ask the obvious? How you interpret these questions will depend largely on the way you imagine Jesus is asking the questions. The text doesn't give us Jesus' tone. We add that in ourselves. Is he angry? Judgmental? Sad? I wonder if, having just stopped the storm with seemingly little difficulty, Jesus is now moving on to the more difficult task of calming the disciples. The storm may be over, but the disciples are still filled with fear, not awe, as the NRSV suggests. They have just confronted their own human mortality and then witnessed Jesus doing the unimaginable. The fear hasn't left. It's intensified. I wonder if Jesus is asking these questions because he's a good spiritual director. That's the tone I hear in them. Jesus is asking the disciples to think through and articulate the whys behind their feelings. The wording of the question suggests that he isn't asking why they were afraid during the storm, but why they are afraid right now after the storm has passed. I think there is a reason to suggest that the disciples are actually more afraid, or at bare minimum, differently afraid after the storm has subsided than during it. Fear of dying in a storm at sea would have been something they understood. It was likely something they had experienced before. They had a framework for understanding that fear. The revelation of just how powerful Jesus could be, that even the wind and the waves obeyed him, wasn't something they really had a frame of reference for. It wasn't even close to something they had a frame of reference for. And that is terrifying. And it would be helpful for the disciples to understand not only that they are afraid, but why they are afraid. Jesus also asks, have you still no faith? The text doesn't tell us, and I don't know if the disciples have no faith. I suspect they did have some faith, but it's a growing and developing faith. 
I worked for years with people who were exploring the practice of living in intentional communities, and we'd often bump up against the difference between their ex expectation of what community would be and what it actually was. They'd read about community and talk about community, and then they would live in community, and after a few weeks or a few days or a few months, they would begin to realize that they were only just beginning to discover what community actually is. It is very different to talk about community than to live in one. I think the disciples would understand that. It would have been one thing to listen and nod in agreement as Jesus compares God's dream for the world to a mustard shrub. It's an entirely different thing to watch Jesus wake up, rise to his full height, and command that a storm be still, and it is. They have been observing and listening to Jesus in each one of Jesus' stories, each experience they have with him stretches and changes their understanding of who Jesus is. It isn't necessarily a change from no faith to faith, but from faith to an ever-expanding and deepening faith. Now, like Newfoundland, England is a land surrounded by water, and that has shaped their culture. It's also shaped the Anglican Church. If you look up, you will notice that the church is shaped like the hull of a boat. The Book of Common Prayer contains an entire section of prayers to be said at sea, including a prayer service to be used when encountering a storm at sea. These prayers are often a beautiful combination of theological and psychological reflection. Perhaps they, because they were designed to be used in crisis, they're particularly honest about the ways human beings react in difficult times. There's the classic bargaining that tends to occur whenever we're in crisis. One prayer in particular begs that God will save their lives while also reminding God that the living, the living shall praise thee. In other words, don't let us die in the storm or we won't be able to praise you. <laughs> and here's one piece I find particularly fascinating. We confess when we have been safe and seen all things quiet around us, we have forgotten thee our God and refuse to hearken to the still voice of thy word and to obey thy commandments. But now we see how terrible thou, thou art in all thy great works of wonder, the great God to be feared above all. I've sometimes heard people preach about this gospel story and say that the point of the story is that Jesus can calm all the storms in our lives, that if you just have enough faith, your life will be smooth sailing. I don't think that's the point of the story at all. I'm not sure any particular gospel story just has one point, but the thing I am noticing in particular today about this one is that there is always more we can learn about God. God is always bigger than we think. You can't just read the story about the mustard shrub and think you've got it all figured out. You can't just have one encounter with Jesus and believe you know all there is to know. The storm expanded the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is. Our experiences, all of our experiences, can do the same if we let them. If we resist the temptation reflected in that prayer from the prayer book to forget God when things are quiet, because there are insights to be gleaned about who God is from meditating both on mustard seeds and storms at sea, the quiet things and the loud things. And we really don't want to miss out on any of them. Amen. 
You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.